There are many ways that we can walk through life, but I'm just going to summarize this morning under two ways, two ways that we may walk through life. And one way is a way of sorrow and regret, or another way we may walk through life is a way of joy and purpose, sorrow and regret, or joy and purpose. So if you'll permit me to use a couple of characters from A.A. Milne's classic story, Winnie the Pooh, who I could use in every single sermon I ever preach in illustrations. I hope you know that. So I'm showing restraint by only using them once every several years. But one way we might process the challenges and sorrows and frailties of life is like Eeyore. Pessimistic, sad, and sarcastic. Another way we can walk through life and process those same challenges, sorrows, and frailties is like Tigger. Optimistic, fun, bouncy, facing any task as a that's what Tiggers do best kind of task. And if you know his characters, those are phrases right from those characters. I want you to listen to one man's complaint. This is a complaint against God about the purposeless of life. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes, Lord, on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Look away from him and leave him alone that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. For there is, no, there is hope for a tree. If it be cut down that it will sprout again and that its shoots will not cease though its root go, grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put on branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters, as waters fall from a lake and rivers waste away and dry up, so a man lies down and rises not again till, he, till the heavens are no more and he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me and set a time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till the renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of my hands, for then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. But the mountains fall and crumbles away and the rock is removed from its place and the waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soil of the earth so you destroy the hope of man. You prevail against him and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor and he does not know it. They, have brought, they, have, they are brought low and he perceives not. He feels only the pain of his own body and he mourns only for himself. That's an Eeyore way of life, but it's full of truth, is it not? It's the response to our way of life. And I hope you know that that is Job in one of his complaints against the Lord. 
Now, he does a lot of complaining, much of it valuable complaining, much of it spot-on complaining about the counsel of his friends, but he does begin to drift into taking control of God through the book. Now, we'll return to Job and find out how he ends, but where are you today? What, what, what typically marks your life? Is it an Eeyore life? Is it, a, is it a life marked by pessimism and sadness and sarcasm? Or is it more like Tigger? And if you know those stories, you know Tigger isn't perfect. He gets himself into trouble and his friends into some trouble, but he's, he is ready to take on life. He has a purpose in his life. Eeyore says stuff like, oh, bother. Don't worry about me. Go and enjoy yourself. I'll stay here and be miserable. I was so upset I forgot to be happy. End of the road, nothing to do, and no hope of things getting better. That's Eeyore. We can all fall into that, can't we? We can all fall into that time where we forget our purpose and we forget our joy. And my purpose this morning, through the voice of Isaiah speaking for the Lord, is to remind us that we have a purpose in life and we should be living that life with joy because we are children of our God. And Isaiah does, goes to great lengths to help us see that. If you remember last week, we started these first 11 verses of, of um, Isaiah chapter 40, and we talked about the change that was happening in the book of Isaiah in its tone. And we reminded ourselves that as chapter 40, chapter 40 starts, we still have a couple of, of divisions within his book, but we are now still, Isaiah still in the late 8th, early 7th century, and he's still writing to the same people, but he has another group of people in his mind that God is focusing more specific on, and those are the people who are in captivity 150 years later in Babylon. So we hear some of what he is saying directly to them, but it still has meaning for those he's writing to and speaking to, and it has meaning for us. And last week we began this section by saying, seeing and observing that there are four voices bringing comforting messages to Yahweh's children in Babylonian captivity. Four voices that we only had two last week of comforting messages to Yahweh's children in Babylonian captivity. And last week we saw the voice of God's messenger speaking tenderly to God's people. And specifically, he said, take comfort that your hard labor is ending. That's your, and we saw in its full picture and all its fulfillment, that's a hard labor against sin. Secondly, take comfort that your iniquity is pardoned. And third, take comfort that you've suffered enough for your sins. All of this pointing to the work that God has done for his people, both to deliver them from um, captivity when they came back into the land from being in captivity, but also for us because our next voice points us forward to Christ. Remember, the second voice was the voice of a prophet cries out that glory, the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed to all flesh. And we saw that um, in verses three through five, that there is a, a way that must be cleared. And it was the imagery of an army coming and making, making a, a rocky and hilly path flat so the army can, can return and the army does the preparing of the way. 
And that's just the imagery that's used because we also saw that, that this, these verses were used in the gospel to introduce the role of John the Baptist who comes to tell about the one who comes to forgive our sins. And in Christ Jesus, the glory of the Lord is revealed both in his first coming and he will be to the entire world where every eye will behold him in his second coming. And that's where we were last week with the first two voices. But today we'll pick up with the third voice beginning in verse 6 and the fourth voice beginning in verse 9. So what I'd like to do to remind us is to have you stand again and I'm going to read all our verses to remind us what last week was and this week. The first 11 verses of Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the deserts a highway for our God, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. A voice says, cry! And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord Yahweh comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. Well, we see the fourth voice introduced to us in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 40. A voice says, and we don't know who that voice is, and I want to draw your attention to something that through this, the voices are not that important. It's the message of the, the, what the voices say. So this seems like a voice giving this command to cry would be God. The second part of it, ESV says, and I said... Some of your versions may say, and he said, or someone said, and those are two text traditions that are being decided upon, whether it will be the Hebrew text, which says, um, uses the, the pronoun for he or someone cries, or whether it's the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, along with some other manuscripts that, that have replaced it seemingly to make it more clear to say, and I said, to be Isaiah being the voice who replies to the voice who says cry. Now, whichever one that is, it would make perfect sense for it to be Isaiah, but the Hebrew text, I'm not sure why we should go away from that and change it. There's a voice crying and a voice answering, and what is the important thing? What the first voice says to do, and what the second voice answers, and how the first voice responds. 
So that's what we see. Cry. A willingness to cry. What shall I cry? Now that would be a good set. That'd be a good follow-up question, would it not? I mean, some of us just think, okay, well, I'll just go cry something. I'll, I'll just go say something. I'm excited. I want to go say something. That would get us in some serious trouble, would it not? That would be using our own wisdom instead of asking this voice that gives us the command to cry, well, what are your intentions here? And I do think the first voice is Yahweh himself. So we would be turning to Yahweh saying, I am willing and I am ready and I have a voice and I have a desire, but what is it shall I cry? And since we are crying, we know that we are looking at the voice of a preacher. And so verses 6 through 8 bring us a voice of a preacher crying out that humanity is frail and will fall, but the word of Yahweh will stand forever. And that's where the message comes in, in the second half of verse 6. What is the, what is the messenger to cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty Maybe some of your versions have other words like loyalty or faithfulness or loving kindness. The word here is kessid, that wonderful word that talks about God's covenant faithfulness, his covenant love for his people. That's the word here. And it is used throughout Isaiah to refer to that. In verses like this, we've already seen it in Isaiah 16. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness, in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. In Isaiah 54 and 55 and 57, we will see them more. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, that's our word, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Or this, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. Steadfast love, our word, kesed. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Isaiah 57, 1, the righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Men are taken away while no one understands for the righteous man is taken away from calamity. That's the only other place that the word is used for man. And it's talking about his lack of faithfulness. Finally, Isaiah 63, 7, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and his great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his kesed, his steadfast love. So that is the idea that's here, the, the idea of beauty in the, in the Greek version of the, New, of the Old Testament. It, it, it translates it glory, doxa, glory. And we'll see that when we look at 1 Peter, when, first, when Peter quotes this verse. But I think what we have here is faithfulness. Look at it with me this way. All flesh is grass. So we're talking about all humanity, right? All flesh. And all its faithfulness is like the flower of the field. Or all its loyalty is like the flower of the field. So... Isaiah is using a very biblical metaphor used multiple times in the prophets and in the Psalms and in the New Testament. James uses it to talk about um, those people who are rich. 
It's used all the time where grass is used as something that's fleeting, something that the scorching wind or the sun comes down on it and it will wither away, it will fade. It's used often in scripture. So it's a, it's a common metaphor to talk about transiency, to talk about something that has, has a short life. And there's a comparison being set up here, isn't there, that we need to catch. So all flesh is what we're talking about. All humanity is, is, is grass, And all its faithfulness is like the flower of the field. Now we find out what that means. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. So God is set up here as the one who is the powerful one. And really the word for breath is the same word for spirit. And some people would think that this is the spirit of Yahweh active. I think this is being used here as breath, but it is the Lord's breath. It is the Lord's power. It is the Lord's prerogative on how he works and what he does. So all humanity withers when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. God is the powerful one. We are not. We are created in his image, and we have a beginning and an end, and God does not have a beginning or an end. And we're reminded at the end of verse 7, in case we miss the metaphor, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What a strong contrast. The transiency and lack of faithfulness of mankind and the faithfulness and eternality of God's word. Now in the context here, the word of God is the salvation that's just been promised. Right? We keep things in context and look at our verses. All of last week, those first, um, six ver- first five verses, that is specifically the word of God that's being talked about. The salvation, the promise of salvation and comfort brought to God's people. But we also know that the scriptures are replete that every word of God, every spoken word, every word that he gives to his people, every word that is written down in his God-breathed book, as we learned last week from several of our preachers, all of those, that stands forever. Why? Because God is eternal. His character is eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end. And we have a beginning and an end. He is not transient. No being can blow on him with their breath and he withers or fades away. He is the strength of the universe. And we are but dust. We are but dead grass when he decides to breathe. All our days are in his life. Now remember our Eeyore and our Tigger. We can be defeated by that, can we not? Well, what's the purpose of living then? Well, why are we even here? If we're so transient, if all God has to do is breathe upon us and we wither up and die, why don't we just think of life like Job does? Because the word of our God will stand forever. Now think of what's being taught here. Is it a bad thing that we are transient and God is eternal? It's a beautiful thing, is it not? Think of the application that that this gives you automatically. See, most of the troubles we get into are when we think so highly of ourself. And that's when we get into the grumpy, complaining, Eeyore life. We think so highly of ourself. It's our own wisdom, what we think is right and what everybody else thinks is wrong. And so we're left alone as the island of wisdom. And if that's our wisdom, then we're thinking of ourself and not God. We're thinking of our word and not God's word. We think of our own reputation. Well, I have to guard my reputation. No, God guards your reputation. Most of the time when you guard your reputation, you'll be in more trouble than where you started. 
And so that's thinking about me. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to have this happen to me. So we think about us and our word and our thinking as if we are the eternal ones instead of depending on God's word that tells us exactly how to respond to that kind of oppression in our life. The same thing when something happens that we don't think we deserve, like losing our job or anything else or health issues that come upon us. If we're constantly thinking about ourselves and forgetting that we are transient, God is the one who is eternal. He has created us in his image. We are transient. We are resting in him and his word. Now, we can, Isaiah could just stop there, and that would be a good thing for us, right? It keeps us from filling the role of God in our life and tells us to turn to his word. In, in, in the word that he's spoken to us and everything that we know about his son, the incarnate word, that would be enough. Pull us away from ourselves and pull us into God because he will stand forever. His word will stand forever. And every time we start elevating ourselves, there's trouble in our life. Mark it. When you elevate yourself, there will be trouble. And if you don't see it, I guarantee you other people are. They're seeing it, they're feeling it, and they're walking in the consequences of it. This straightens us out. This is our place. But it's not some place of servanthood, some servience, isn't it? It's not a place that's a bad place to be. God is our creator. He is the one who's created us. He has redeemed us in Christ. He, he has given us a purpose. We don't have to be left to figure out what our purpose is. And when the world spits against it or our enemies spit against it or circumstances spit against our purpose, we have to wonder what it is. The word of the Lord stands forever. And he gives us our purpose. He gives us how we interact in relationships. He gives us how we respond to falsehoods. He gives us how we care for each other. He gives us how we worship him. He tells us in his word how to be saved. He tells tells us what happens if we're not going to be saved. He tells us how we're to walk with integrity in the midst of a lost and dying world. He tells us all of that. And when you die, his word is going to tell the people behind you the same thing. Amen. So why in the world would we get stuck on ourselves? The word of our God stands forever. But Isaiah isn't finished yet, is he? He has given us this picture here in verses 6 through 8 that we, we just... We're dust. We're, we're going to dry up when the Lord decides it. But that's not what's important about us. That's humanity. That's the way God created us. After sin into the world, we're all going to die. How are you going to live your life until God says that's the day that you'll die? Will it be an Eeyore life? Grumbling because it's all focused on yourself? Or will it be a Tigger life? With all his struggles, that everything, that's the things that Tiggers do best. We follow the Lord our God when he speaks. We have his word, we trust in him, his character, and we follow his word. So what else does his word have to say to us? Well, there's another voice, isn't there? There is another voice yet, not just the voice of a messenger or a prophet or a preacher, but we also have a voice of a herald. And the voice of the herald cries out, good news, behold your God. Look at verse 9. Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Now we take our understanding of parallelism and we realize that this is being said in two ways and a, the same thing, but also it intensifies a little bit from Zion to Jerusalem, making us understand that these are the people who dwell in God's place. These are the people who dwell where God dwells. These are the people who God promises to redeem. 
These are the people who God promises to, to not only physically bring them um, out of Babylonian captivity, but he promises to deliver them from captivity to their sin through the coming Messiah, what we saw last week. So those people who are looking forward to that in the 7th and 8th century, who are looking forward to that in the time of the captivity, who look back to that in the time of the new covenant, look back to the time of the Messiah coming and being shown. Has that been down there like that for a while? Has it really? I'm sorry. I did not realize that it slipped. We look back to this time that the Messiah has come. And we are thankful that we have a God to behold. But I want you to see closely here, herald the good news. That is one word in the Hebrew and in the Greek it's euangelion. It is the gospel. It is the good news. So we know when we talk about the good news, we are talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. Right? Amen. When we talk about the good news, talking about the gospel, we're talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. Sinful man, unable to redeem themselves. Christ comes, lives the perfect life, dies on the cross, is resurrected. All who have faith in him then become his children, and we now have our eternal life guaranteed. Our salvation is guaranteed because our sins are forgiven. That is the good news. All the Eeyores in life, all the people who are living according to their own thinking, their own wisdom, their own works, their own realities, when they come to this Christ, when they come to this Christ who has lived and died and risen again, then they become partakers of that good news to a salvific way. And that's what even in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, the people of God in Isaiah are told to climb up to the highest mountain, the high mountain. Go to the place where when you speak and cry out, the most people will see and hear you. Go there and be a herald. You are a herald of good news. Notice that it's not saying go herald it. It says you are the herald of good news. You are the herald of good news twice in the second and fourth line of verse 9. Then it tells us a little bit more about what we're to be doing. Lift it up, fear not. Lift the good news up and fear not. So that tells us the attitude that we're to have. Tells us the attitude that we're to have when you present the gospel in your workplace with your lost friends standing on the corner at the abortion clinic. You give the gospel online to your, or to your children or to your neighbors or in someone who is, who is um, completely an enemy and acting out against you and you give the gospel to them. You don't have anything to fear. Why? You're going to die eventually anyway and God is eternal and he's given you a purpose. He's giving you marching orders and you're to give that gospel freely with no fear. This is the same thing that the Old Testament saints. Talk to them about your God. And in the Old Testament, it would be more, bring them to the mountain. Remember chapter two, bring them to Jerusalem so that they can hear from our God. Now we are scattered so that we are telling the world and all the nations and people around the world, we are telling them about our God, Jesus Christ, who came as the God-man to live and die and be raised again. And all who put their faith and trust in him will have eternal life. We sang about that this morning already. Amen. Get up on a high, to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, So there's the attitude, the attitude that we have to have, lacking in fear, never worrying about what anyone will say against us, never worrying about anything else except this pleases our God. 
This is what God would have us do, is to preach this good news. But then what does he say? Right at the end of verse 9, behold your God, with an exclamation point. Observe, look at, behold. We've seen this word over and over in Isaiah already. It doesn't just mean to casually glance at. It means to look at, take note of, take stock of its importance, sit in it, simmer in this for a while, behold your God. Our whole sermon title, the title of our whole series comes from these verses right here. Behold your God. We just sang in a corporate way, behold our God. And we held his attributes up. We heard all of the promises of God and how those promises affect our life. Read 20 different passages of scripture read to us to show us that God speaks to us about our life and how that life should be lived without fear, without worrying about anything. Even when times are dark, even when times are sorrowful, behold your God. Is there anything in your life that you are walking through right now that Jesus doesn't understand. There's not, is there? There's not one thing. He has suffered in all ways that we have, but without sin. So when we are going through things that are beyond our strength or that confuse us or that are out of our control, we we aren't worrying about us. We're seeking him. Through his word, we're beholding our God. What a beautiful thing for us. Listen, do you know that you could spend every minute of every day of the rest of your life and never fully behold your God? Do you know that? You could never exhaust the depth of the scriptures. You could never exhaust the depth of godly men who have written in the past on what God, on, on the scriptures and what God, who, how God has revealed himself. You could spend every day meditating upon the character of God and still only have a drop in the bucket understanding of who God is. And you will grow in your joy and you will grow in your knowledge and you will grow in your holiness and you will grow in your obedience because you are contemplating the character of your God. It's, it's marching orders that give us purpose, right? And this is what we have to tell the other people. Stop and think about that. If you're not doing it, how do you tell the other people to do it? Hey, I don't really understand this. It really doesn't mean much to me. But I'm supposed to tell you, behold God. Behold Jesus. He came, he lived, he died, he rose again. Uh, give, give, give him a shout. I'm not, I'm, I mean, I believe that, but it really doesn't affect me at all. That's an Eeyore life, isn't it? It's disconnected from the eternal word of God. God has given us so much in his scriptures that draw us closer to him, that deepen our love and affection for him. This is what I talk to people all the time at who are trying to grab a hold of systematic theology or even biblical theology. They're trying to grab a hold of things about God and it's purely an intellectual um, pursuit. They want to have their facts straight. They want to be able to regurgitate it. But there's this iron between their head and their heart that never lets the word penetrate their heart. Never lets the word penetrate their heart and say, this is for me. It's not just for me to know something about God. It's not just for me to know what to tell you. This is for me. It has to overcome me first. It has to be deep into my heart first. Why do you think we sing? We sing to bring glory to God and let his word sink into us deeply, right? 
We sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs so that the word of God can just get into us as a community and we sing it to each other. The word of God is powerful. And so if we're going to tell it to others, we first have to understand it ourselves. If we are going to be fearless, we have to believe and understand what it means to pursue Christ through his word. And that means everything. All those areas that came into your mind at the beginning of this sermon when I said that when we think about ourselves, we get ourselves in trouble, all of those ways God speaks to it. We learned last week, God's word is authoritative and sufficient, amen? For everything that you go through in life, the word of God is enough. Because it's spoken out by him, it is breathed out by him, and it's everything that we need for life and godliness. So, John Calvin says this about beholding our God. This expression includes the sum of our happiness, which consists solely in the presence of God. It brings along with it an abundance of all blessings, and if we are destitute of it, we must be utterly miserable and wretched. And although blessings of every kind are richly enjoyed by us, yet if we are estranged from God, everything must tend to our destruction. This is the center of a believer's life, is beholding God, knowing God, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Savior Jesus Christ, allowing the Spirit to work that word into us so that it changes our life. We call that sanctification, that we're conformed into the image and likeness of our Savior. And we have to understand this personally before we can be the evangels, can't we? It has to get into us. And it has to get into us in all ways. Not just by our language. Not just by showing up for church. Not just by knowing that we sat through all 14,000 sermons so far in Isaiah. Not that. But that we've listened to these sermons and we've studied the text and it has been deeply in our heart so that when we get to chapter 40, we truly do feel the relief that judgment has been placed on Christ and not us that chapter 40 brings. We are to be bold. We are to be without fear. Ed Young in his commentary says, the messenger is to be bold. He is to raise his voice that all may hear. The church is not to keep this message to herself, but is to present it to Judah's city with a holy boldness. She is not to pose as a seeker after truth, unsure of her message, but to declare in clear, firm, and positive voice that her message is true. She must be vigorously and militantly evangelistic. Hesitation and trembling are out of place. There is no need to fear as though the word of God would not be fulfilled or as though the message would prove to be untrue and embarrassment would result. Did you hear that last sentence? There is no need to fear as though the word of God would not be fulfilled or as though the message would prove to be untrue and embarrassment would result. These are the words of life for us in a lost and dying world. And we have the privilege, the purpose in life of telling other people about this and giving them the same comfort that we have received Well, what are we to behold about God? There are many verses from 10 and following that will present to us this God. Verses 10 and 11 present to us the summary statements of this, of his power and his care. 
Verses 12 and following will we'll spend many hours in beholding God and his different attributes. His attribute as creator, his attribute as savior. But this is the beginning of that. Behold, the first thing that they are to behold and to cry out to the people around them from the highest mountain, a mighty warrior rules with his strong arm as he comes with his reward. Look at verse 10. Behold, the Lord Yahweh, your version may say Lord God, God in all caps. It's Adonai Yahweh. So it's his, his he, Adonai reminds us of his power and his sovereignty and Yahweh is his covenant name. So this is a a strong reassurance for God's people, is it not? He is the mighty one. He is the powerful, and he is the one in covenant with you. This is the God you're to behold. Behold, the Lord God, the Lord Yahweh, Adonai Yahweh, comes with might, and his arm rules for him. So we've seen the idea of the arm when we've gone through the Psalms earlier in Isaiah. We've seen it in other passages, especially in that Old Testament pictorial language that when we talk about the arm of God, we're most often talking about his power. Not only just the exercising of his power, but the fact that he is the power. It's not just that he exercises it, but he is power. He is strength. And when he acts, it's done in strength. It's done in power. Here, specifically before us, His arm rules for him. His strength rules. So this has all of those kingly attributes, doesn't it? Where God is the king of his kingdom and he rules that kingdom and he has the strength to do so. Jesus, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to him, right? All authority has been given to Jesus. Jesus rules his kingdom. And Jesus, our our triune God, rules their kingdom God rules his kingdom through his own strength and might. There is no one more powerful. There is no one stronger. There is no one who can take that rule away from him. The fact of his mere existence means that he is the strongest one. And it's his rule that is shown forth. So when he speaks, you see how this all ties together? It's the word of the Lord that stands forever. It is the mouth of Yahweh who has spoken God's word will not come back void. Why? Because he's the all-powerful one. And he is ruling and reigning over his kingdom. And if we are members of his kingdom, who should we be listening to? Ourselves, right? God's given me a brain. I can make my decisions on my own. That would be suicidal, wouldn't it? It would be spiritual idiocy to to think about that. We are beholding our God, and his arm is ruling It also says in the third and fourth line of verse 10, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So these words, reward and recompense, in fact, your version may even have reward on the second line. They're very close in meaning. The first one has to do with a wage given for work. The second one has the same idea, but it's more clearly tied to the type of work that you did. So one You're told to show up for work, you show up for work, you get a reward for that. The other one, you show up for work and don't work well, you're going to get get, um, what's going to happen in your reward is it's going to reflect how you have worked or not worked. That's the idea of the second one. Now, this could be talking about, excuse me a minute, I am fighting this and I'm kind of tired of fighting it, so let me see if I can fix it. I'm easily distracted by my own thoughts, let alone fighting with a mic that I set up wrong. Let's try that. 
When we read in Revelation, we read that Jesus is coming back and he is going to give recompense. He's going to give people what they've earned. Sinfulness will get judgment and, and obedience to Christ, being having your robes washed, being submitted to Christ, that will be blessing. But I think what he's talking about here, he's talking about his people. He is bringing his just reward, his recompense for the beauty and glory of his work. It's the people that God has given him, the people that, God, that, that Jesus said, I will not lose any. So when he comes and rules, he's coming in this picture, he's coming and behind him in that, in that grand picture of a, of a general returning from battle victoriously with the, the armies that he's conquered behind him and all his own soldiers behind him and before him, this is what's being talked about. Jesus, in his work and in his uh, uh, finished work on the cross, has purchased the people for himself, and everyone that God gave him is now in the kingdom or will be in the kingdom. He will not lose any. That's this idea that's being brought to this. So we're beholding the God who sends the Messiah who will accomplish that through his life and his work his recompense before him, his reward is with him. But I want you to see another way his arm works. Now, the arm is an arm of strength, right? Strength and power, it's the picture of that. The arm of the Lord will accomplish what the Lord desires. But look at verse 11 as we see a tender shepherd gathers, carries, and leads his children with his strong arm. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now there are a multitude of scripture passages we can go to in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, where God presents himself as a shepherd. He also presents his leaders as shepherds. And we know that there are passages in Ezekiel and Jeremiah where he severely chastises the leaders as being bad shepherds, false shepherds, and that he will be the one to come. Just think of things like Genesis 48, 15. Jacob blessing Joseph, and that that blessing begins like this. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life along to this day. Of all the pictures he could have used, Jacob uses the idea of God being his shepherd, the one that gives him care, the one that comes after him, the one that keeps him. Psalm 28, 8 and 9, Yahweh is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forward. We started our worship service with those verses. God's work of delivering his people from Pharaoh. Psalm 78 says this. Then he led out his people like a sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. Ezekiel 34 is one of those passages where he pronounces judgment, Yahweh does, on the bad shepherds, and then he presents himself as the good shepherd who will go after the sheep because they have no shepherd, and he will go after them and bind them up, and he will care for them, and he will bring them in and pasture them. The same thoughts are, you can find that in Isaiah 34, 11 through 24. Jeremiah 35, 1 through 8, the same thing happens. Zechariah 13 says, strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And Jesus himself applies that verse to himself. So Jesus, even in his going to the cross, he is the struck shepherd 
who the sheep are scattered and he is struck so that he will gather them in by his work. When Jesus arrives at Bethsaida before feeding the 5,000, the Bible says this in Mark chapter 6, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus shows his shepherd's heart in gathering people to himself. If I be lifted up, what will he do? He'll gather people to himself through the work that he does on the cross. Turn to John chapter 10. Beginning in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, He goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also that they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jump to verse 22. At that time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
Now that's the picture of the good shepherd that all of the shepherd metaphors point us forward to. I want you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 40, and with those words in mind, I want you to look at the words that are used in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. This shepherd, and we just see the ultimate fulfillment of that is Jesus, will tend his flock. That word has the idea of feeding them, leading them to the pastures that have food in them, feeding them and caring for them in that way. He will gather them in his arms. He gathers first because he is the one who died for his sheep. And he gathers them to himself in his strong arm. Now don't be confused here. We hear this shepherd language sometimes, and this shepherd language causes us to think of, of gentleness. Well, Jesus is gentle, but shepherds, they've got hard work to do. They have to kill lions. They have to pull sheep back from the edge of cliffs because they think the better food is at the bottom than at the top. Their, their work is hard. But that's why it's his strong arm who does it, right? All the power of God is in his shepherding. So he will gather the lambs in his arms. But look what else. else he will carry them in his bosom. When you and I are living life in this crazy womb, the world, we are being uh, carried in the bosom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is going before us. He is behind us. We are with his word. We are under his protection. And if we die, we die because he is in charge of all of that. But he, with his strong arm, is preserving and carrying his church. He's preserving and carrying you and me. What great joy it takes, for, it gives to us to walk in this crazy world preaching the gospel because we have a mission and we have joy doing it because the power of our God keeps us in our Lord's bosom. Amen. And... He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Gently lead. Now get the picture here. One of the things that I've been captivated with is, is watching videos sometimes of border collies as they work herding sheep and cattle just to whistles and calls and what they do. And man, those dogs love work. And they're going after those sheep, but they are driving those animals. They're driving them where the herder wants them to go. And they do it well. This picture is Jesus leading his people with gentleness. Now, how does he lead us? He leads us through his spirit, who he sent to do the work that he left on earth to do the earth, the work that he was doing before he went to heaven. And the spirit now leads his people to that, leading us into truth, leading us into righteousness. The spirit now is doing that work, leading us through his word. Not outside the word. Dare I even have to go back and mention all we've focused on in the last several weeks of the sufficiency of scripture. He's leading us through the word while he carries us in his bosom and all of that being done because of the strength of our God. No strength anywhere can match that strength. And yet this is the blessings of being in Christ. He gently leads those that are with young. So this passage of scripture gives us the joy that we should feel because of the love of God that his covenant faithfulness directed to us but it also gives us our mission we are standing on the eternal word and we are preaching the gospel we are giving that word we're preaching that gospel to a lost and dying world and we are also preaching that gospel to ourselves so then we wonder what we're supposed to say or do or think or act or how we're supposed to respond to something the word tells us not our own mind, not our own experience, not our own weakness, our own wisdom, but the word tells us. 
And all of this he is orchestrating while he carries us in his bosom in his strong arms. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Starting in verse 13. Now we'll see Isaiah 40 quoted at the end of this, but I want you to see everything that leads up to it, that that quote will help us understand. Therefore, 1 Peter 1.13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, who is ruling with his mighty arm, right? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now this is Peter's way of talking about this life between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. We are in exile in the world. We're not yet home. And that's the way Peter writes. Verse 18 knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He came to forgive sin, and his glory was on display for all to see. Isaiah chapter 40. When through him are believers in God who wait, who, I'm sorry, I read the two lines together, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You see the summary of our mission? Our faith and our hope are in God. Because all the things we just learned and many, many more, and we will find many, many more as we progress through Isaiah, reasons that our faith and our hope is in God. Verse 22, having purified your souls with the obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. So you see that. We we have been purified, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. If that's true, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Because you've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For... Now we have our our text that's quoted from Isaiah 46 and 8. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You see how that ties right back to Isaiah 40? It is the word, it is the good word, the eternal steadfast word of God that we are to preach to everyone starting with ourselves. 
And when we do that, and that is our mission, then our purpose is to bring glory to him by living according to the gospel and preaching the gospel. And the joy comes from the fact that we recognize that though we're transient, he is not. Though we're weak, he is strong. Though we're wandering, he scoops us up and holds us into his bosom. Though we might be confused at times of what to say or do or how to act, we have the, ever, we have the word of God before us and the spirit to help us understand and apply it. And when we live like that, no more Eeyores. We, we don't have to live like that. We overcome all of those circumstances with the joy of the Lord and we're proclaiming the same salvation that is infecting us all the time, helping us live for God's glory. Well, Job, remember we started there. Job had some complaints against God. And when you track through the book of Job, you realize that Job gets perilously close, if not enters blasphemy of accusing God. He starts out just holding on to his character and using the character of God to refute his friends. But by the time he gets going, he gets so caught up in his own suffering and bad advice from friends that he ends up coming close to blasphemy and God enters the scene. And after God talks to him, and ask him those famous questions, where were you and who are you? Job says this in chapter 42. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What did Job do? He beheld his God. And he repents before his Lord, and the Lord restores him double what he had before. And he is able to worship the rest of his life, and the scriptures end. And Job died an old man and full of days. That means he died with joy and satisfaction because of his God. Not because of the stuff and things, but because he beheld his God. Let's pray. How grateful we are to your word. And we ask you, Lord, today that this would be, this would be, Father, a conviction for us that we might be a people who live for your glory. And we live in a world that can quickly captivate us by its evil and its sadness and make us turn sorrowful and depressed and hopeless. But you have promised us that you are in control of this world. And if we but depend on you in the way you tell us to do, if we bow before you, if we hold on to and study and learn and apply your word, which tells us all we need to know about Jesus and how we please you and how you're advancing your kingdom, we ask, Father, that you would strengthen us, that we would feel the strength of Christ gathered us in, held in his bosom, even as we are out in the midst of a lost and dying world with sin pummeling us from all sides, remind us, that our rest is not here, but our rest is in heaven. 
The promises, Father, we taste, but they will be fulfilled when we get to the new heaven and new earth where all of that evil will be gone and punished and and dealt with according to your word. So make us, Father, holy. By the contemplation of your word, by the realization of the work of your son, by beholding you at every possible moment instead of our world, beholding you instead of us, seeing you exalted instead of us, seeing your wisdom instead of ours, seeing your plan for us instead of ours, would you glorify yourself as we endeavor to better behold you in our lives? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.